Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. You keep the faith in me, and you my man. You my favorite man. Can you take it, baby? Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. We have Paul Bloom with us again today. Paul, are you going to make us talk about sex robots again? All episodes that have me on, we'll have to have about 45 minutes on the sex robots. <laughs> Should we just jump in or you guys want to? You know that mythical, that mythical claim that if you click on enough Wikipedia links, it'll lead back to philosophy? If you talk long enough to Paul Bloom, it'll probably lead uh, back to sex robots. I mean, like five minutes. I think it's, it's, it, it really, it really doesn't have to be that long. Just, uh, once you go beyond the pleasantries, <laughs> look, we're already talking about it. Yeah, you, you, you know, just in case people are new to this, I have no interest in talking about sex robots. This is just something that that you guys have pinned on me. It's 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 our shtick, but it's you know shtick yeah. is sometimes based on on fact. So, so yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So what what are we really talking about today? So wait, let's first let's say uh, Paul Paul Bloom from Yale University, the Brooks and Suzanne Ronald Reagan uh, <laughs> professor <laughs> of psychology at Yale University. No, Brooks and Suzanne Reagan professor of psychology. You should get a more easy to remember chairship. Um, <laughs> yeah, that that's, that really is how it works. You get it. <laughs> yes, um, yes. And it, I am David Pizarre from Cornell University with zero chairship and <laughs> zero potential for a chairship. That's easy to remember. <laughs> yeah. So since we're talking about academic honors, a congratulations is due. Uh, Tamler has just been promoted to full professor. Yeah. Which is the, the highest status you can have in academia. Yeah, this is it. Since I don't see a named chair in my future... Congratulations, Tamler. Very well deserved. Thank you. So now I have to go through my contacts and take out associate from all of the contacts where I have you listed and put in full. Full? Well, it's not effective until September 1st, so you still have some time. Drop me a a text when I... Yeah. (laughs) Last (laughs) second, like midnight. You you know it's the top honors when when it just gets removed. Like You no longer have to specify what kind of professor you're. You're just professor. Yeah. And there is yeah. something about associate professor that makes it sound like you're not a real you're not real professor like oh, I know. Paul Paul can't relate. It's been too long. I guess yeah. I think hippocampus doesn't go far back enough to remember that. I've been a full professor the last 50 60 years and just <laughs> really really you really get used to it. But, you know, the whole thing is I always want to make a cookbook for academics and call it the full professor. 
Mm. And this is just such a good title. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Are you a good cook? <laughs> Thank you. That, this has been my TED Talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, are you a good no, cook? No, I'm a terrible cook. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a, um, an unambitious cook. Okay. <laughs> All right, so what are we talking about today? Two things. Um, in the first segment, we're going to talk about immoral art or art by immoral people. Just the connection between art and morality. It's definitely something we've talked about, but never with Paul, I don't believe, and never in a kind of focused way. Not that this will be a focused discussion, <laughs> yeah. but no. Uh, and then in the second segment, thanks to our Patreon listeners um, who voted on this episode, this is their special episode, which we do roughly twice a year, where our Patreon members get to suggest episodes and then we narrow down to finalists and then they vote and they voted for this topic specifically requested paul bloom uh on the effect of parenting do parents matter we're going to talk about the famous judith rich butler hypothesis harris judith rich harris yeah <laughs> Judith Rich Harris hypothesis that off to a good start that uh, your preparation family yeah. <laughs> parents don't matter at all it's all genes and peers genes and peers so uh I- immoral art um first like so this has become way more <laughs> way more of an issue since since Michael Jackson and I'll tell you why it's it actually started influencing my life and why I actually care like people have stopped playing Michael Jackson music just, you know, when you go out and you're in the store and you hear the radio, like there's just no more Michael Jackson music. It's weird. I feel I have a big Michael Jackson shaped hole in my musical heart. Really? Yeah. It's yeah. Like, like, like a black mirror episode where everything's <laughs> exactly. the same, except there is no Michael Jackson. <laughs> exactly. We're, the, we're now in the parallel universe where we just, we've just, and, and I had, maybe I'll start off with this. I think this could lead to a, a, a more general discussion. One, Question one, is it okay to play Jackson 5 stuff, like when Michael Jackson was a kid? <laughs> when he was being abused. Yeah, I, I think this will get to the heart of what, what I think makes, makes it acceptable or unacceptable. And two, did you know that uh, one of Michael Jackson's most famous songs, uh, You Are Not Alone, you know that one? Yeah. You Are Not, was written by R. Kelly. Really? Is that the ultimate... Song to never be played again. <laughs> is that a d- wow. double? Is that sucking yeah. morality out of the airwaves? It is actually. We were walking home the other day, and Pyt was playing in some bar. You know, is Michael Jackson from Thriller, also called mm-hmm. Pretty Young Thing? <laughs> so, <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> it it you know. So I I like I guess start with that. Is that okay to do, in your view? And then we can go back to Jackson 5. Well, I don't know that we've stated, I guess, whether, you know, what we think about it. Paul, what do you think about this? Like, just in general. Yeah, so in general, I think that the the immorality of artists should have very little bearing on whether their work is played. I, I, I wouldn't take Michael Jackson off the air. I, um, I, I think that, that and, and, and more generally, by the way, to talk about another debate, which maybe you guys touched upon or not, but there's a big question about philosophers and philosophers <laughs> who have been accused of sexual harassment or sexual assault. Should they stay on the syllabus? And maybe right. many sort of smart people say, no, you got to take them out. 
replace right. them with people who are more um, more decent. And I, I find that I, I strongly disagree with that. However, I mean, one thing we could talk about, I think for certain art forms, the morality of an artist makes a difference for how you perceive their art. And yeah. so I could understand, just to shift examples a bit, people find no longer finding Louis C.K. funny. Right. Or, or interpreting his humor differently. But and, and I can imagine people interpreting the songs of Michael Jackson differently. But no, I don't think you take them off there. Uh, so let me actually uh, just make a, a quick distinction because I think like it matters to me. So there's a question of is it immoral to listen to or you know to Michael Jackson or to consume the art of somebody who's who's let's just say undoubtedly. I'm sure there's some people who still think think MJ is innocent. But let's just say there's, you know, there's just no debate or you, you firmly believe that, that a person has done something terrible. Is it wrong to listen to it? And versus, is it wrong to buy it? Yeah. And finally, is it wrong to play it if you're a radio station, sir, but, you know, play it for an audience, um, impose it on an audience. And I, I stand firmly in the. It, does, it shouldn't matter at all. Like intrinsically, the art does not, um, it stands on, on its own, I think. I, I think the only problem to me is a pragmatic one, which is, you know, watching Bill Cosby just makes me think of rape now. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's, it's, it's not even that I perceive the jokes to be less funny. I, it's, I mean, I do, but it's only by dint of the fact that I have these intrusive thoughts it might happen to Michael Jackson. Like Tamler just made that quick quip about pretty young thing and, and how, how now the, the words pretty young thing seem to mean something else that boom, that just takes me to thinking of Michael Jackson molesting kids. And pra so pragmatically, it's just, you know, in a purely hedonistic fashion, it's giving me bad feelings. So in some cases I don't care to listen to it. Now, other people might be offended. So if you're a radio station, I think you have a different problem on your hands. Yeah. You might be putting child rape in some people's heads. Yeah. Involuntarily. Yeah. So I'm with you guys on the first question completely. Like, I think there's nothing immoral about listening to it, putting, uh, there's nothing immoral about reading it, buying it even, because, you know, but if you, if it is getting in the way of you appreciating their art, then I don't think there's anything wrong with that either. Like, you know, if, yeah. if for some reason what they have done makes it no longer possible for you to enjoy their art, I don't think you're being PC or priggish or, you know, it's just that's, there's all sorts of reasons why I would change our perspective about a person's artist and the finding out that they've done horrible things could definitely be one of them. I, so my feeling about like playing Michael Jackson on the radio or like at this bar where people walking by would hear it, uh, I don't know. Like I, I don't have a problem with it. I don't think in in that case, even with something like Pretty Young Thing, if people if enough people write to complain, maybe practically speaking, you might not want to do it. But I. Don't like I'm not with the cancel group where people should just ban it from any public so that only people who are voluntarily choosing to listen to it have access to it anymore. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a weird thing where I think because of the I don't know, because of the, the salience and the, the 
what it means for uh, our current social world to have Louis C.K. and Bill Cosby associated with what many believe <clears throat> is a is a good movement to try to improve the way women have been treated. Right now, it, it kind of it seems important to people. Um, they think that's that that you are somehow co-signing with everything the artist has to do like in a way that I don't think we ever have before. Like the, the whole joke growing up when people, whatever people in my family would talk about Wagner was that, well, yeah, like, the guy's a fucking Nazi, but like, listen to this. Right. And, and with enough distance, I think we can start separating it, but I don't know if it's a case like Paul was pointing to where, um, if, if Wagner was writing lyrics that were vaguely anti-Semitic and I understood them, um, or even if his lyrics had, were able to be interpreted in a vaguely anti-Semitic way, I might feel differently. There's something about just... His music just sounds like, like a Nazi, <laughs> like, a, like a Nazi, yeah. like, scream. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, may, maybe, maybe years from now, our, like our, our kids or grandkids will be like, are you playing molester music? Like whenever they hear that sort of thriller, funky beats. <laughs> what yeah, do you think I mean, about the ra- like put on the radio question, Paul? I think I, I think it's fine. I mean, there, there's another issue which we haven't talked about, which is what about music itself, which conveys you know racist or misogynist messages? And I think that's a more difficult problem. Uh, but I just I just can't get myself. I, I can't bring myself to care. That you know Wagner was was a Nazi. That, right. that Nietzsche was a Nazi. That so and so owned slaves and everything. <laughs> well, it, technically, it, neither were Nazis. There were no Nazis. Well, they, were, the they were they were they were, were Nazi ish. Proto Nazis. Proto Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> <Proto-Nazi>. yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Tamler, for offending your uh, your your purity. First, they came views. for Wagner. Never. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but I, you know, I, I just, I just think it's irrelevant. I think there's pra- there's two practical concerns. One, one is that if you know, if I'm a radio station and nobody's going to want to listen to my music, that got to be a factor. Yeah, yeah and, and, and then David mentions another pragmatic factor, which is I might, um, knowing what I do about Mel Gibson, I may not want to put money in his pocket. Right. And so right. you know, as I say, it won't affect our work. I just don't want to want to support him. Same with Bill Cosby and the like. I would, I would be less feel less guilty bootlegging. The work of an immoral yes, artist. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> like just pirate. Bit, like you will you know, find passion, any reason a, to bootleg uh, uh, movies Bay, and music. Piratebay.org. Passion of the Christ, please. <laughs> but I think of, of all, I think Louis C.K. is actually the more interesting case because yeah. um, a sort of theory of art and communication I like more generally is that when you appreciate an artwork, like a comedian you um you extract uh what you believe to be the intentions and the ideas from their head and that's what you're resonating to not just the words and so yeah. it then depends on on the person i mean you will listen to a, a comedian who's a minority or who's rich or who's gay or who's misogynist in a very different way and and yeah. i think that that will affect your interpretation of the words and and it should there's nothing irrational about it so it depends on the comedian, right? If Stephen Wright, it turned out, was yeah. a, a like just a like a racist or uh, so I, Stephen Wright. For, for those who might not know, because not everybody's fifty years old, um, <laughs> including famous, me, is a famous one-liner uh, one-liner comedian, or is is just very witticisms that that take the yeah. form of one one-line joke. 
Yeah, could I could I um could I tell my state favorite Steve Wright joke? Uh, I, I I I won't try to do. It. I I went to a, I went to a store and they said open twenty four hours and they said we're closing up and they said you're open twenty four hours and they said not in a row. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so like his his art is disconnected from yes, any, right. but but Louis C.K.'s art isn't disconnected. It's very personal and yeah. I think part of it was. You had to assume that he was a good person deep down and wrestling with the bad parts of his his personality. I mean, I, That's I it what might we said. Be, we it, actually said that on our on our when we were talking about it and we've been quoted back saying like we we think Louis is a good guy, you know. And, yeah. then, huh. and people are like, "Well, huh. turns out should people be listening to very bad wizards when no, we asked? are good. We are good. We're, they're definitely good guys. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> If you dig deep enough, I think you can find a kernel of goodness in both of us. <laughs> I, I mean, that might be. I mean, like also, we shouldn't judge Louis C.K. just on that. Like he's that's uh, right on that yeah. one thing. Um, so I think like listening to him talk about his kids, which he does a lot, I think could still be very funny. I still played a clip for of a class where he ta- where he gives like the Peter Singer argument in fifty five yeah, seconds. Too. Yeah, and yeah. you know, I just I, I I prefaced it with it's a little weird now to, uh, but you know he's not going to be pulling his dick out in this clip. He's going to be explaining Peter Singer. But so, oh, so so that's how that's how you assuage the feelings of discomfort <laughs> among the females in your audience. Well, I don't think I I phrased it that way. I I don't. I, uh, but I but then I I did it. I didn't do that one this time. But I had done a, an earlier one, so I figured. You know, like how many Louis C.K. clips do you are you going to play before it starts? Seems like you're se- sending a message or something, yeah. or, or like um, proving guys, a point. You guys, something you guys you guys were mentioning, which is the the immorality of the art itself might be problematic. So so uh, songs that contain lyrics that you know that are about doing bad things, and it's weirdly I feel like we've dealt with that as a society already. We we've sort of agreed uh, among especially the the liberal side of the nation. That that's something that's fine and that ought to even be protected. Um, and, uh, you know, I remember when I was coming up and first starting to listen to lots of, uh, of music on my own, that was an issue for, for a lot of rap albums. So, so they instituted, yeah. you know, Tipper Gore did this thing. They instituted this parental advisory stickers on everything. And, um, and there was essentially a free speech battle there. But nowadays, it's like we don't even talk about that. You know, I'm constantly shocked at the fact that Obama was such such an open friend to Jay-Z when if you really wanted to dig through Jay-Z's back catalog um, and find lyrics that were misogynistic, uh, lyrics where he comp- you know, essentially admitted to selling lots of crack cocaine and using that money to fund his, his record label and his first album, there is there is a ton that's there. Moreover, we we like Jay Z for that, and we think that he's an authentic person. That Jay Z would never lie about that, right? And um, and yet, yet we're okay with that. You know, we're okay with violent lyrics. We just don't maybe don't pay yeah. attention to them. Maybe you don't want your kids to play them, but it's not like we're we're maligning the artists. I don't know if I agree with you that 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 the, there's a liberal consensus on this because I hear a lot of liberal discussion about when they're criticizing a piece of art, they'll criticize immoral character, and and this is usually like a movie or a TV show, immoral characters within it that they feel like the the point of it isn't to 
expose their immorality and and they criticize uh, it yeah. for that. So there was a lot of that with three billboards. People were yeah. mad that the Sam Rockwell character, who was racist, got they they said that he got redeemed in the end, whereas I I don't think that's the right reading of the movie. But the fact that they were having that conversation at all shows that at least for some pieces of art, I don't think that consensus exists like it did around rap music. I well, think it's, let, I, I think that's but, a good, I, I think rap is an unusual case because I think liberals were torn. Um, you know, it, on the one hand, it's misogynistic and violent and so on, often homophobic. Some of but, it, but but some of it, <laughs> but it's also predominantly African American. Yeah. So um, so uh, so yeah. liberals yeah, were kind so of Eminem, torn. Yeah. So Eminem brought out more wrath yes. from the white people, probably. Yes. Um, um, but but the, I agree with Tamler. I've seen films castigated for not being diverse enough. Yeah, instance. yeah. But let me clar- clarify. What I meant is that there's nothing close to the sort of the cancel like movement, right? This is very. It. I feel like at least the debates about free speech for these people have been have that's they're right. done. No, that's right. right. Like there's, we can right. talk all day about whether or not this is, was a good message or or whether Fifty Cent is a good guy. But it's very no nobody says we we shouldn't n- no longer play Fifty Cent music, even yeah. though you know he's an admittedly very terrible guy at one point in his life. I was at a wedding. I get your guys' intuition. I was at a wedding a little while ago, and they were playing Leonard Skinner, uh, yeah. Sweet Home Alabama, and everything. Uh-huh. And I was having a great time, but then it occurred to me: is this like going to be blackface fifty years from now? <laughs> Listening to Skinner, yeah, and dancing. <laughs> Senator is going to have to resign. Because there's a <laughs> video of him old, yeah. singing Sweet Home Alabama at a karaoke bar or something. Yep, yep. That'll be the end of them. <laughs> um, so, so rap is actually interesting in another way that Dave, you alluded to, which, and I think you mentioned previously, where it really is a case where the, the origin, the, the sort of person the artist is makes a difference. You talk a lot about authenticity and what yeah. kind of difference it makes to know that somebody lives the life they're talking about versus their opposer. Yeah, exactly. In in terms of the, the the works of art that seem to get a lot of liberal criticism for their immorality, there are certain shows or movies that seem to get a free pass. So, like, we've talked about South Park forever as an example of this, but then also Veep. Um, yeah. Oh, man. Yes. I, I, yeah, I was just watching this season, and boy, they're hilarious and God damn it, if they can't get away with jokes that I would never, ever think anybody could get away with. Yeah, just the most offensive, most reprehensible there. And for some reason, nobody cares about, maybe just because it's so unbelievably funny, but for some reason, like that show gets a complete free pass from anybody caring about, and you know, there's racism, there's sexism, there's, there's just, I mean, pick the things that get especially liberals upset, but also conservatives, and it's on that show. So how did they get away with it? Because you're right. It never occurred to me, but I'm watching the show and incredibly racist jokes. And, you know, yeah. Reprehensible characters would say these things to one another. Yeah. But, but, they're, but they're extremely funny and, ex- and extremely offensive. So and likable. The-, the characters are likable. Yeah. So that whole thing where you can't make this kind of character likable, they do. Like every uh, show, I, every character except maybe Jonah is likable on that yeah, show. Yeah, I was going to say, they, well, the only way they can get away with this is that um, that the people who are saying those things, everybody understands that it is not at all a reflection of those actors' true beliefs. Um, if if they were, you know, if, if even one of those characters was told, you know, somebody said that backstage they were, you know, like 
calling someone the N-word, it, it would be over. And, and I think that the, the distance between the, you know, the committee of writers in the writer's room and the people who finally deliver those lines is, is what keeps them protected. Because I was thinking the exact same thing. Like, if Ju- could Julia Louis-Dreyfus, for instance, say any of these things in a stand-up act? And I think the answer is no. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think people just lo- love her so much yeah. that, that she can do what she wants. But I would say nobody thought Sam Rockwell was a bad guy or secretly racist. And, and they got, he's still, he, not him, but the movie still got shit for his. But the message, but the message of Veep isn't particularly have to do with race and whatever. Um, the movie did have, does have, movies carry moral messages. Yeah. I, I, I don't think, I actually don't think, I think, don't think it's a mistake to disapprove of the message a movie is presenting or approve of it. It's part, yeah. it's part of a communication. You could like it or you don't like it. Well, and, and I mean, we got to distinguish yeah. the, the just mere, you know, disapproving from, from the like, I don't know, Tamler, I never heard anybody really talk about uh, badly about that, that movie, but that's because in my circles, people just don't watch good movies. Um, but, I mean, it did get nominated, right, for an Academy Award? So it can't have been that much of a... Well, I mean, I think that was the reason it was the uh, subject of so much debate is because it was, it, it was nominated for an Academy well, Award. Well, in fact, the, 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 the movie yeah. that won the Academy Award um, also stirred a lot of debate. Fish sex? What? Uh, shape, uh, shape of shape Water? Shape of Water. No, 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 no not, the, not, not the fish sex one from last year. Um, <laughs> the one, and now I'm blanking on the name, the sort of... Updated driving Miss Daisy. Uh, that was this past year. Yeah, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Spike, uh, Spike Lee said, "Every time somebody drives somebody in a car, I lose." <laughs> <laughs> that was so funny because you know, driving Miss Daisy was same year as do the right thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but like, so are we doing a disservice to people who would say like? Uh, Wait, this is a super low-hanging fruit to take Michael Jackson off the air. Nobody feels good listening to Michael Jackson now, and if you do, that's something weird about you. Let's let's send a message that we won't we won't take our artists being child molesters and do the right thing and yank it off the air. What's it, I I don't What's I don't want to with- dismiss it so easily right. because I think there there are arguments in good faith about this. Yeah, it, it's sort of a utilitarian view. But I think that, that, that says the world's better off if we show everybody that we don't tolerate child molesters, we'll destroy their career, and right. so on. I just think that such a view devalues uh, art itself. I think it's yeah. totally compatible to say he, he was a terrible person, but, but his music is, was extraordinary. And give, so much, give enough value to, to the music say, well, we're going to leave him on air because yeah. of the value of the music. Right. I think Michael Jackson is a case where he was so sort of bald-faced in his relationships with children that it is an extra betrayal on his part, right? If he had never even seemed to be so moved by his love for these innocent children and then going to do that, that's like sort of the ultimate betrayal. You know, R. Kelly, it's like, yeah, Yeah. I mean, did you think he was a good guy when you were first listening to his stuff? Like, no, you know, he he married Aaliyah when she was like 14 years old. There was always something creepy about Michael Jackson's. Yeah, and and there were accusations from way back. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, like, I I don't know, like, I was not surprised at all by this. Like, 
there was something deeply just weird about him in general and about and especially about all the kids that would come to Neverland or wherever. Yeah, uh, I'll admit to having just really, really wanted so badly for it not to be true and just to think that he was misunderstood um, that that I, uh, in a probably motivated fashion, just was ignoring, <laughs> not, not wanting to believe it. Paul, you brought up philosophers on yeah. syllabus. So- John, John Cyril, for instance. So, so I, I've heard people say, and it's similar to the argument David was giving, or trying to explore, which is, look, you know, he, he, normally you teach to Chinese room, you teach certain fundamental philosophical work he's done. Yeah. But, but the idea of rewarding and, and in some way discussing and treating with respect somebody like that, the cost out, outweighs the benefit. Let's put somebody else in the syllabus. I think in that kind of case, maybe there is a, a cost and the benefit has to be a little higher than it normally would be to put them on the syllabus. So if if there's something else that you could put on that would do the job as well or maybe almost as well, then maybe you do that. But if there's not, then you don't because now the benefit outweighs whatever cost there is. I mean, that would be one just kind of middle ground so, position to take. I, I have a, a what might be a bold claim. But, but I think I, I want to argue this, that our intuitions about whether or not, um, say, like a misogynistic man or whatever, somebody with a shady character should be on a syllabus will be related directly to the truth value of the discipline that we're talking about. Like, <laughs> that's one way to put it. So the closer you get to everybody understanding that it is an actual piece of knowledge that's been added to, uh, you know, to this set of things we know, the less we're going to care. So the, the structure of DNA, right? Yeah. Those guys, those guys were assholes. I think at least one of them was. Um, but there's no way I would never teach the double helix. Right. Because right. they discovered, they, 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 well, somebody else, it, right. they discovered it. It's, and, yeah. And, and, a mathematician right. who, who proves something, you might say, well, you know, I hate that it was this guy who did it, but here's the proof. Yeah. When you start getting into the social sciences, <laughs> I think it is the very nature of what, you know, what, what we're saying, what, what, whether or not what we're saying is like that of a hard science. Um, that fuzziness starts to give us a little bit of wiggle room to start deciding who we want to listen to. And then by the time you get to art, which is wholly subjective, it is everybody's luxury to completely dismiss the work of somebody they don't like. I, I, kinda, I might disagree with both of you. I mean, Tamler, you're right. If it's a coin flip, I might choose somebody who wasn't accused of a crime. I'll choose somebody whose PDF I already have on my computer and I don't have to go looking for it. I mean, if it's a coin flip. But, but I think for the most part, take John Cyril, who has pretty serious accusations against him. I think his, his paper in a Chinese room is accessible. It's brilliant. It's important. And I wouldn't hesitate to present it. And... I would hope that the people in the seminar would sort of have the maturity of thought to separate the work from the man. Well, yeah. that's actually, that's, that's why I, I think the, the, Sur the Searle Chinese room paper, I think, is a good contribution to, you know, I'm not removing philosophy from having, from having right. made contributions to, to what we know. And I think that one was an important argument, you know. I, but I, I also don't think, like, you could teach a, a, a film class on 70s cinema and not put Polanski or you know Woody Allen 
Woody Allen. Although I, I mean, as a separate thing, I actually think there's, I, I don't, I, like, I, I don't see the evidence like there is yeah. with Polanski that he, fair enough. But yeah, so say Chinatown, like, you know, it's one of the best yeah. movies of the last fifty years. You can't not include it on a on a syllabus, even though it's not presenting a truth like, you know, discovering DNA or something like that. It is a fundamental piece that you have to um, see if you're going to understand what happened in the 70s. Yeah, I think I, I think you're pointing to something else, which is when you're getting at that level, like and you're what you're teaching is something sort of like the 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 history of film. Of course not. Right. So we can't talk. We can't talk about history. You know, you take from my example, like Pizarro, the guy who conquered the Incas, was a vile, illiterate murderer. Um, of course, I can't teach the history of the Americas <clears throat> without mentioning him. But I think that's different. I, am I fair to say that it, that's different than enjoying it sort of qua artwork when you're in a, teaching a class on sort of film in the 70s? That is different. I mean, there's, it is different. There's different between reluctant, reluctantly observing. Well, there's a guy, Hitler. Let's talk about yeah. him for a while. You know, versus sell, you know, enjoying and appreciating, and yeah. some you know, admiring the work of somebody who might be a reprehensible person. But uh, I guess I, I the seventies cinema class that I'm thinking of, they're looking at what is so brilliant about these movies. Yeah. They're not looking yeah. at just a document. It's not like searching for archives of Leibniz's journals or something like that. It's it's like this is beautiful and deep complex art that's being presented to us would it be different to you if polanski was all up in his movies like woody allen is i mean that's an interesting question because he really isn't he's not the, the a filmmaker where his presence is so obvious in it right. it's except that it's usually really good but right. um so i don't know I wonder what a good example of that because I think that Woody Allen is still up in the air whether he did anything. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so I don't know if that I can't use that as an example. But what about? Yeah, I mean, I guess it would have to be like the show Louie or something. Right. Right. I, I feel like I'm missing an intuition here. I mean, I understand how other people feel strongly about it. I don't differ in my disapproval of these acts, and you know, I, I have kind of standard intuitions that it just has very little bearing on my appreciation of the artwork. If it turned out Hitler wrote some great detective novels and then people say, oh, they're terrific, I'd read them. I think I, I side, I, at the end of the day, I side with, with you, Paul, on, on this and probably with Tamler. I'm a defender of the aesthetics of art. I, it's, to me, it's a purely pragmatic question. Does, does it bother me enough? Um, then I'll just stop listening to it. Not, not by, for principle yeah, um, yeah. or not because I think it, the art is worse or that I shouldn't be listening to it. It's just, you know, I, I'm well-schooled in the art of defending vile artists because I started listening to rap right around the time when it got vile. And yeah. I love it, right? And I don't condone any of the things that they're talking about, but I don't deny that some of these people have been very, very bad people. And uh, I, I just think art is, is a thing to be evaluated on its own merits. Whether you want to support financially an artist, then fine, don't, you know, don't, but but don't tell me that I can't listen to 50 cent or whatever because yeah. Yeah. I agree. Okay. All right. We should move on because yeah. we have a lot more to talk about. <laughs> we definitely do. All right. Um, we're going to take a break and we will be right back to talk about whether parents matter or not.
Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time of the show where we like to thank our listeners for all their wonderful forms of support. Thank you for all the emails, the tweets, uh, the discussion. Um, if you want to get a hold of us, you could email us at verybadwizards at gmail.com. You could also tweet to us at verybadwizards at tamler at peas. We promise, like we always say, we read everything, but we don't always have time to reply, but we still very much appreciate it. You could also join our lively uh, communities in the Facebook Very Bad Wizards page or on the subreddit. Um, subre- the subreddit is reddit.com slash r slash verybadwizards. Or you can support us in more tangible ways if you would like to do that. You can go to our support page, verybadwizards.com slash support, And there you'll see three ways in which you can support us. You can either give us a one time or a recurring donation via PayPal. You could click on that Amazon link and shop as you normally would. And even though you don't pay anymore, we get a little little piece of that and we really appreciate it. And finally, you can become one of our beloved Patreons and go to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash verybadwizards. And um, you'll see there a few of the bonuses that you get once you become a patron of our show. In fact, one of the latest things that we did for our Patreon listeners was record an episode on an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. This is one of my great achievements. I got Tamler to watch an episode and discuss it with me. Again, available to our Patreon supporters. Um, Final thing that I'd like to say, if you're listening to this the week that it's released, the week of April 15th, uh, Tamler and I are actually going to be in Vancouver together this week. Uh, we're both presenting at the American Philosophical Association meetings there. And there was enough interest from our Vancouver listeners to have a get-together. So we're going to do that on Thursday night, April 19th, 2019, at the Emerald Supper Club in Vancouver. That's Thursday night, April 19th, at 8 p.m. at the Emerald Supper Club in Vancouver. Uh, We look forward to seeing some of you there. Again, thanks to all of you for your support and all the ways in which you show us support. We really, really appreciate it, and um, it's what keeps us going. So now we're going to talk about a a view that was proposed and popularized by Judith Rich Harris that parents don't have influence or an impact on their kids. So I first learned of this, Paul, from you at a conference I think it was in the Society of Philosophy and Psychology Mm -hmm. at Penn. And you were, I I, I can picture it. I'm not even sure where it was. I think it was in Philadelphia. But I can picture the bar. And I know that Eddie Namias was there. (laughs) And you proposed this. And my daughter had just been born, so I didn't care, right? But I remember Eddie Namias really being upset by what you said. Yeah. that, That 
parents don't matter. And he said, I want, because he, he's been a father for a while, and he said, I want, I want the way I raise my kids to matter to their future. And you said, well, the research says otherwise. And I couldn't tell, I didn't know you if you were just being provocative or if you were. But, but explain the view and explain what the evidence for it is. Because I, I start out initially skeptical so the intuition is exactly right. Um, for the most part, good parents have good kids in any dimension you can look at, and bad parents have bad kids. Um, and and it's just it's 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 for anything you know. Parents who read a lot to their kids have kids who read a lot. Parents who who are are tend who have criminal histories are more likely than not to have. Sorry, their kids are more likely than other people to have criminal histories. Correlations is about everything. And so the standard view in this is that, that parents imprint their kids with intelligence and personality and all the traits. So Judith Rich Harris, who has this astonishing personal history, she was unaffiliated with any university, just, you know, a shut-in, essentially. And, um, and so she put all this together and, um, and also in, in, was then supported by people like, uh, like Steve Pinker and many others and really let along with behavioral geneticists, including people like, like David Rowe at University of Arizona, really led to a, a revolution. And, and this gets summarized in Time magazine, in other words, as do parents matter? But that's not quite it. Of course parents matter. Um, and she'd be the first to say, first thing, parents matter in that they typically provide the genetic material for the kids. And that has a huge influence on the way kids are. Parents matter um, in the specific, uh, a lot of specifics about how kids grow up. And certainly parents matter in how happy their kids are. You know, we're all parents. We have within our power to make our kids' lives a living hell or, or you know, wonderful as best it could be. And, um, and, and how we do this obviously affects our kids' relationship with us. But Harris's point, and she didn't do in original research, she put it all together, was when you look at personality and intelligence, it turns out that about 50% of the variance roughly can be explained genetically. And that, everybody knew that. But the cool thing is the other 50% doesn't have much to do with, with shared environment. It does not have to do with parental influence. And so one bit of evidence comes from adoption studies, which is, you know, if any of us adopt a kid, the kid, will, as a baby, the kid will grow up and be totally unlike their, their, their siblings that, that, that are genetically connected to us. It's as if, how you raise kids makes no difference for their personality or intelligence. Um, another point she, she makes is that an enormous amount of family environment has to do with birth order. Firstborns are treated differently than secondborns, differently than thirdborns. And yet when you look at the data, a birth order has virtually no effect. Since even in the last couple of years, there's been meta-analysis, big, big, big analyses, and yeah. there's no personality differences and tiny IQ differences. And, and does that make sense? I think parents know this in that you, if you ever have more than one kid, you know, which I did, my kids have turned out very different. And, and you see the workings of all sorts of other factors, of their genes, of their environments. They resemble me, but there's a good case for me that this resemblance isn't because something I did to them. But right. just because, you know, shared genes. I mean, this is a, I think that, that um, when I first, uh, was exposed to this. I think I was right in grad school, and I was begin. I was a beginning developmental student, and that's right around when this came out. And it's it's interesting just to add some background. I mean, the, 
we were in the process of hiring a developmentalist and we were looking for someone who did social development, which is sort of the area that Judith Rich Harris is criticizing, like a whole bunch of people saying good, good parents make for good kids. And um, it, it was just so clear, you know, as, as Judith Rich Harris describes it, the emperor has no clothes. When it came to those studies that were just a bunch of correlations showing, you know, good parents have good kids. And everybody was so quick to assume it. But the most powerful argument that is her positive claim, I think, was that that, that rest of the piece that, that, that comes after the 50% genetic, that environmental piece, isn't the parents, but it really is the peers. And I remember being sort of convinced by this, the one argument that she, that she made, and I don't know why it was this particular argument, but which was, children of immigrants do not speak like their parents. And yeah. that to me captures, I think, a very important, you know, it's obviously not the best piece of evidence for her claim, but it captures the spirit of her claim. You're going to, if you're verbally gifted, you're going to have a child that's good at talking. Now, you move countries, you come, you don't speak their language. All your kids hear is the language of their parents for the first few years. And then all of a sudden they go out and they speak with no accent whatsoever. Why? Because of the rest of the world. Okay, so, so my first worry is that we're talking about two different things when one side claims that parents have an impact on their kids and the other side says, no, they don't. The, the Judith Rich Harris says, no, they don't. The, the people who say they do, they don't necessarily mean that they are going to be like that, that. Like, so when I think I have an impact on Eliza, I don't mean that she's going to be like me, that she's going to become a philosopher or think in the ways that I think. I mean something more uh, ambiguous, nuanced, that through unconditional love and support, she is going to be able, and I think Alison Gopnik makes this point, she is going to be able to flourish in ways that she wouldn't have been able to had I been an absentee dad or a distant and cold dad. Mm -hmm. And it seems like a lot of the studies that she looks at are studies about whether the parents turn out to be like the kid in a very specific way, rather than in this more complex way where I think Alison Gopnik says it's to think of it less like a carpenter where you're molding them into something specific, more like a gardener that is allowing them to flourish in their own ways. So a lot of studies do look for a causal role. Like, so I imagine a happiness study, for instance, would look not necessarily on whether a kid's happiness matches that of her parents, but rather does, do the parents have any influence on the happiness? So once you factor a genetic relationship, is there, um, is there a correlation? Um, now, your point is right, which is looking at correlations implies looking for the sameness. I think for a lot of cases, it comes down to the same. If you're the kind of parent who wants your kid to flourish and provides love, you're kind of a loving, approving, good person. Right. It's hard yeah. to think of many cases where the parent has a trait and you'd expect, the ki you'd expect if the kid's brought up and there's a causal influence, the kid to have the opposite trait. Right. And can I just ju jump in? Because I think, Tamler, yeah, in your objection, yeah. you, you're missing, uh, so, I think, an important point of the story, which is that kids, in fact, do uh, become similar to their parents in those very things. Right. So they do 
end up sharing personality traits and intelligence levels with their parents. So it's, it's, it, that's, that's sort of the starting point that that, that is, that is something that's been found over and over again. No, I get, I, I'm not missing that. I get it. But then she will go on to say that that can't be explained by parenting influence. And I buy that that can't be explained by parenting influence. That's probably genes and, and other things. What I'm saying is that if, if you are a loving and supportive parent that provides a lot of unconditional love, maybe your child will be more successful and more yeah. successful than you were. Like, uh, because maybe you didn't get that from your parents or so that's the kind of thing that I didn't see measured. But I think it's a lot of the when when parents get offended that when they hear that they don't matter. But if you're right, that would imply that if Eliza had an adopted sibling, an adopted sister, right, the two of them would grow up to be more identical in what you'd expect. Because, right. because you would have swamped them both with your love and your care. So if one grew successful, the other one more likely than not would grow successful too. And a lot of data that she talks about suggests that's not the case. Right. And a lot of anecdotes from people, and I've, I've, I've heard these anecdotes myself, they're all over the place. People who have adopted kids, and often they just loved their kid, the kid turns out great, but the kid seems to go on a very different path yeah. than, than, than their biological kids. You know, I, I, I noticed this. I mean, there's as a parent, it's very hard to not have this confirmation bias that when I see my daughter doing something that I encouraged quite a bit, um, I, I like to take the credit for it. Um, so, but, but there, you know, there are ways in which I've tried to influence my daughter, right? Like I exposed her so much to, say, comic books and cartoons, and she really never developed a liking for those things. Um, but when she shows a liking for something that I also tried to encourage, say some, some kind of music, I'm like, well, I guess it worked. My influence worked in this case, but not in the other case. Whereas it's probably just the case that she has her own, she's developing her own likes and interests. Um, and she's influenced a lot by her peers and her genes or whatever. And, um, maybe what I'm doing as a parent is when I find something that she actually likes, then I keep hitting that one, right? I keep encouraging that one. And it feels like I'm extra powerful. Does that make and, sense? And she's, she's like, yes, it doesn't. And, and she's likely to do something the same if she's like most people when she grows up. So if she loved comic books, somebody asked her, why is it? Well, my dad loves comic My dad taught yeah. me that. My dad got me. If she hates comic books, she might say, my dad tried to force them upon me, you know? And I really right, rebelled. Right. I, I really rebelled. I can't even look at them anymore. Right. And so, so there's a, you know, everybody thinks, there's a tremendous impulse to, to blame your parents, um, for, to blame or credit your parents. And it, the evidence that there's a causal role of the parenting is, is really weak. So, so here, this leads to my second, and this is a bigger criticism, that the way she frames the debate. So she frames the debate as she's defending the null hypothesis. And the null hypothesis here is that parents have the, 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 that parenting and what parents do has zero impact on the kid's future and the kid's present outside the home, I guess. Um, and so and she places the burden of proof on anyone who rejects the zero influence hypothesis. I think that rigs the game. A little bit. I think she and those who defend this view are, ma- are are making it very easy 
on themselves. All they have to do is demonstrate that there are problems with social sci- social science studies on parenting that have tried to isolate some particular influence that that parents might have and show that that study didn't reveal any influence. But like any null hypothesis, like arguing from the null, that's problematic. It could just be that the study was designed improperly, that that the study was misconceived and should have been and should have been designed in a way to to get more complex factors. And I think parenting effects are going to be complex. The the ways in which parents impact their kids are going to be difficult to isolate in a way that a social science uh, experiment has to do. And so here's my question. What would happen if you tried to, and she doesn't seem to do this, if you tried to tear apart the peer effect research in the same way that you tried to tear apart the parenting effect research, I'm not convinced that you couldn't come up with a peers have no impact view in the same way if all you had to do was was tear apart those studies. I think you might be right. I think the the peer hypotheses are interesting hypotheses. It, I think you might be right that it won't survive that much scrutiny. It might in the end be the other fifty percent that's not genetic is just random shit. It's you know it's like you walk down the wrong street, you get beaten up. Another street, you find a twenty dollar bill. Somebody falls in love with you. Gamma rays come and rewire a tiny portion of your brain. I mean, it might just be random. That that that's the true null hypothesis. That is right. Nothing. That is the null hypothesis, but that's not how she frames it. She frames it as parents have zero impact is the default. I think that 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 w- it was a rhetorical flourish that she used that I don't think uh, that I think is doing it uh, doing her her own argument a, a bit of a disservice because what she was pointing to and the interesting background is that she, you know that she was a textbook writer, so she was trying her her best to keep up with the field, uh, uh, you know, across these various editions. Uh, and reading, consuming all the science. I think that what she's saying is that for so many years, that's been the default belief, that everybody's tried to show this to be true, and that all of the studies that, um, that claim to be the best evidence for this actually fall apart under scrutiny because they haven't taken care of these, these very glaring confounds. And so yeah. when she says, I'm here to defend the null, she's really saying, like, let me change. If, if we changed our default belief to parents don't matter, what would we see? And, right. yeah. and, and I, I think, unfortunately, you know, and if you read her exchange with Jerry Kagan in Slate, you know, she does, in some cases, she's not doing herself any favors. But she is fairly subtle, I think. For instance, she says that there is a case, there is one area in which parents clearly influence probably through socialization and that is how kids act within the confines of the home with their interactions with their parents she says you you can very much uh, have a household in which your your kids listen to you um you know get along well with with you and their siblings and you probably have a, a some degree of control over that it's just that when if you're trying to predict how the kid is going to be in life in general, once you leave the confines of the home, then what you realize is that stuff just doesn't generalize. Who they are is, is, is just a very different, different person. And, and the peer work, I think she's, you know, she, she herself never did these studies. And I don't know if they fall prey to the same uh, criticisms. But 
I think she was pointing to the Pierce stuff to say, well, here is a plausible alternative hypothesis. But the whole time she's also saying, like she says very, I think explicitly, Paul, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that, that that's also a really hard question because if you are a certain kind of person, you are going to gravitate toward other like-minded people. And you yeah. might think it, what you might think is a peer effect is, is essentially just another genetic effect. Um, and it's very hard to tease those apart. So, yeah. So tell me, you're right to be critical. I, I, I agree with David on, on these points. On the one hand, you have all these studies saying that parents who are smart have smart kids, parents who are aggressive, aggressive kids. And so she points out, well, that doesn't support the parenting hypothesis, could be genes as well. But at that point, you're right. You're just kind of at a standstill. It's just a question mark. It's not an argument against parents influencing people, right. kids. But then you get to all the adoption studies and the genetic studies and the sibling studies. And that does actually provide sort of positive evidence against the parenting hypothesis. I, 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 I don't know. You'd have to. There could be all sorts of reasons why adopted kids turn out differently you know, especially if they're raised in the same home with a real kid, right? Maybe parents treat real, them differently. A real kid? Tamara, adopted <laughs> kids are real too, you know. I, I, I meant, uh, oh man. They're just, you, they're just, they're just unnatural. I meant, I meant the normal one. <laughs> no, in fact, like my big regret is not adopting a child. Um, Good save. Uh, uh, but, but anyway, uh, I, so I apologize for that. It's not what I meant. I meant a biological kid and... Yeah. And how that might impact the the kid's psychology and ha and their perceived environment, and so I, I, I you know that that doesn't strike me as that much positive support. It's very it's suggestive for sure. But so here's what she says when she is considering objections. She says researchers, it's possible that researchers haven't looked at all the possible ways that parents could conceivably influence their kids. Perhaps there are subtle effects that their measuring instruments have missed. I must say, though, they've been looking for them for an awfully long time. And I would say, not really. Like, they haven't been, and maybe the tools of social science on this question are, are, are just not equipped to deal with the more subtle or complex uh, influence that parents will have and what she's shown like a as a corrective against the overconfident parents have this huge impact absolutely but as a what I'm not at all convinced by is the claim based on what I've read is the claim that parents have zero impact it could just be that we haven't found the right way to to see how they have an impact but that's the more radical hypothesis that Somehow a kid who spends most of their time from the time that they're born to the time that they're 18 in a specific environment, that that wouldn't affect their personality long term at all. That's the more radical claim. And so that's the claim that you would feel like you would need to provide more positive support than. No, than I, 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 I agree. It's crazy radical. I mean, null hypothesis, I think she framed a kind of a statistical point, which is where you look for you're looking for an effect, not a not a null effect. But yeah, it's a radical claim. But I mean, you got to think how much you're giving up, Tamler, in the way you're saying this. So the data she talks about says that if you adopt a baby, you know, yeah. and you and your wife raise the baby, you will have no effect on the baby's IQ, no effect on the big five personality score, no effect on whether the kid will go up to go to prison, divorce rates, in, you know, a long, long list of things. Now, you might be right to say, ah, but they haven't looked at this or they haven't looked at that. Well, no, wait, but, it, does the it, data show that it 
that there's no effect or that there's that nobody has shown that there is an effect? Uh, the data Sarah, the, 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 the second one, the data, there, there's no, there's, if you find a zero correlation right. between, and it's not a okay. zero correlation, there's a tiny correlation, but if you, find, if you find a zero correlation, you can say, well, you know, maybe there's an effect, but our statistics missed it this time. Maybe okay. we took the wrong thousand people. Okay. But okay. So anyway, best, sorry. But, yeah. but the conclusion is say, you know, the things that social psychologists tend to be interested in, personality, intelligence, criminality, stuff like that, um, there does not seem to be an effect. But, but but to add to that, you know, the part of the negative claim that she's making is, but if you're going to look at those more subtle things, if we get more precise instruments, you have to do it in the right way. You can't just proceed with the methods that you've been using because those methods are ill-suited to make causal conclusions. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, that's that seems totally right. It, it, so I read that Quillette thing that you, by Brian Bootman, um... That did you guys didn't you send that? Mm, no, I, I I don't read Quillette uh, Talmud. No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> he only put Patreons it. <laughs> no, I, uh, I I know the article you're talking about. I think I, I remember reading it a while ago. It's very good. So what what does it argue? Well, it's the parenting doesn't matter. Peers and genes only matter. Social science research is wrong. This is the thing that dr- drives me crazy. Is that like it's one thing to to tear apart the parenting research. But like, if social science research is wrong, then you don't know that peers uh, that peers matter, and even some of the research on genes is not all by behavioral geneticists. You have to figure out how to decide uh, how to measure behavior and how to measure personality, and that's social science too. I, I I don't know. I see like a weird lack of critical. Like it was very hard to find a critical piece on on judith rich harris it's like her story is so kind of inspiring and cool that like people never like the brockman like was issuing no challenges no objections nothing just like (laughs) oh "Oh, just so awesome did you know she got kicked out of harvard when as a graduate (laughs) student and then got the award for by the same guy like I, i don't know like it just seems like people are their critical faculties are dulled by this view, and I don't look, totally get why. But 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 look, I mean, the the, the vengeance my field has gotten on Judith Rich Harris is, to a large extent, by ignoring her, by ignoring her critiques. So I can walk into any developmental colloquium in my coming environment, my department, right. and I'll hear somebody cheerfully say, "Oh, look, we measured a thousand parents, a thousand parents' use of you know racist language." And then we looked at their kids, and the parents who said very racist things had kids who were very racist. Clearly, we must intervene and stop parents from saying racist things to their kids. Yeah. And okay. if, you, if, if, you raise, if you raise your hand and you say, maybe whatever makes bigoted parents is passed on and bigoted kids, even if you never met each other, the person will sigh and say, yes, we're not going to do a full study like that. And yeah. Yeah. So also the contrast some, class matters. Like that's not my contrast class. So that's yes. why. So my contrast is, is that you, you go. Is there's a ninety five percent of of research on parents' effects on children don't look at genes, and 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 as such, it tells us nothing. Right. It it really it, it's just often just tells us nothing. There's right, also yeah. one just 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 to get this in. There's there's a third factor we got to talk about. Was mentioned, which is child effects. So, so yeah. suppose it's true that, that spanked kids grow up to be aggressive adults. Well, 
maybe violence is in the genes. Maybe, as, as the traditional view would be, spanking makes your kid mean. But maybe you tend, you're more likely to spank boisterous and aggressive kids. Right. And so, so, so much of, of even forgetting, imagine genes never existed. So much of developmental psychology proceeds under the assumption that how children act has no effect on parents. It's only the other way around. So I yell at, I yell at my kid all the time. We have terrible, terrible fights. And, and then lo and behold, as an adult, he's a difficult and troublesome kid. And then people say, well, you made him that way. Well, no, he made me that way. <laughs> this is all hypothetical, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> so, sorry, Max. <laughs> no, it's not, not Max. It's not Max. <laughs> no, actually, actually, my kids don't resemble me at all. So, which is altered, altered our best. You know, yeah, so Max I, is like I, writing I, for the National Review. <laughs> um, you're gonna have to bleep that. Um, yeah, well, that'll okay. it'll, be re- it'll be replaced with the nation. <laughs> yeah. I um, the nation I, like, with a robot <laughs> voice. I think that um, along with Paul, I've noticed that this had zero effect on social development, and I'm no longer in development. But it is disconcerting to go to these talks um that sometimes rear themselves in in social psychology talks when where it is such a default assumption and 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 in fact if you say well what about the the behavioral genetics work um not only do they say well we're not going to look into that they they might say oh oh you're one of those all right <laughs> next question right um, right <clears throat> there's it's very very different mentality but i can I, see how that would be hugely annoying and yeah. wrong-headed yeah and i think from the sociology of science perspective it's just you know i mean there are various re- it's hard to do behavioral genetic studies you know it's it is so intuitive that the effects are causal in one direction and here's where i i'm sympathetic to you tamler with what you're saying because I, and maybe paul you feel this way too i i think that i became convinced of the at least the criticism part of this of this story um and and of the positive claim that peers influence far greater than we thought i can't live my life with my daughter not thinking that the things that i'm doing are having a causal impact on her future happiness her future abilities and and i i proceed that way it's my intuition is too hard to shake and i in fact i say you know i spent a couple of years ago when, when my daughter moved from Canada to the U.S., she was in a much hard, more difficult mathematics class, and I spent hours and hours each week helping her with her math and until she mastered it, and now she's better than me. So I say, well, obviously, that was me. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, and I'm not backing down from that. I'm not saying, <laughs> that to me was proof. And I think that that... Of course, there are going to be subtle ways in which we influence our children. I mean, you know, Alison Gopnik actually tweeted um, in response to Paul's tweet, Mm -hmm. well, of course, parents matter because without parents, kids would die. Well, yeah, but you don't have to get that extreme to to find some obvious things, right? Like if you provide nutrition for them, right? If you're a wire mother, like a Harlow wire mother, I'm sure they won't thrive. If you... Um, are super non-contingent. We know that parents, the children of depressed mothers, um, have bad outcomes in ways that isn't that isn't just depression, right? And I don't know, Paul, what you think about this literature, but a depressed mother is behaving in this sort of weirdly non-contingent manner to her kids, and it interferes with things like language learning. 
I'll defer to you on this, Paul. Is that so? Yeah. So, 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 two quick things. W- one thing is the claim about parenting ma- parenting matters. It, it does obviously a parent versus no parent makes a huge right. difference. It's a claim about differences yeah. in parenting. Um, so, Alison Gopnik's I think comment was a bit misdirected. Um, the 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 depressed mother literature is super interesting. And it's very hard to factor apart. Depre- kids of depressed mothers are, have difficulties. May, and it seems to be more than passed on by the genes. One theory I've heard, um, uh, I'm not sure what the current state I heard a couple of years ago, is depressed mothers tend to be more likely to marry, to, sorry, to have their kid with uh, fathers who, are, who have psychopathic traits. Oh, really? And the problems with the kids aren't genetically cued in by the mother, but by the father. Hmm. And those are the sort of interaction effects that become very interesting. Yeah. I mean, so it just, mattered that she was depressed. It just mattered in terms of yes. who she picked as uh, a husband. I mean, this is uh, she, she talks about the single parent research, too. And she says once you isolate things like income, then a lot of those effects go away. But like the fact that the father left is why single like like why the 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 household has no income and so the the fact that he left did matter it just didn't matter in like how he was treating the kid in the house right but all sorts of so all sorts of things matter in some sense david's example of tutoring his daughter in math um you know if i go on long trips and my kids lonely without me that'll make the kids sad the question that people are arguing about is matter for the shaping of the kids personality proclivities intelligence happiness and those sorts of things but that's what they were measuring with the single parent yes that's right is 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 their future you know personality and success and and my point was just she's measuring parenting as impact that the parent has in the household whereas somebody leaving the house has an impact but it's obviously not going to be an impact in that way so that's a more measured version of gopnik's objection you know so single parents involving people leaving the house you have plain genetic confounds because the sort of person who would leave you know a relationship is a different kind of person who wouldn't i think there's been some work and maybe she talks about this of kids who have uh, parents one of whom dies through some, you know, through some sort of semi-random event and what effect that has on the kid. And I don't know how this all works out, but knowing Harris, I think the argument would be, oh, that makes no difference later on. It makes the kid miserable. It could be terrible, terrible, but it doesn't make the kid less conscientious or smarter or less agreeable or anything like that. You know, the, the three of us have a colleague um, who once told me something very interesting. He said, you know, he, he had a first kid who was just really difficult and pretty depressed, right? Like, you know, like in very, very severe ways. And then he had a second kid and that kid was just happy-go-lucky, you know, everything was like water off a duck's back. And he said, if it weren't for the fact that I had a second kid, I would have gone to my grave thinking that I was a horrible parent because the things that I did had, had yeah. such a terrible impact on, on the first kid. Um, but the second kid is sort of what gave him the understanding that sometimes the genetic lottery is is the only thing that's going on, um, because you know at least to the extent that you can do this, he the the other circumstances in their upbringing were the same, right? So yeah, I mean that that it, it, it's arguing you know the claim is nobody with more than one 
kid can deny the the power of genetics and also of, of, of accident. But look, both of you are sort of saying as if you couldn't live with this idea. You couldn't live with the idea. No, I'm, I'm not kid. saying that. I could. Okay, well, 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 Dave was saying that. So let me sort of say. <laughs> and Eddie, all, no. <laughs> all, all of the, and, and Eddie, and Eddie, yeah. All of the three of us have been in, in you know, long-term relationships with people. Um, and and you, sharing, you know, you're in a romantic relationship and you want to make the person happy. You share in their goals and everything. But you don't typically believe you're going to shape their personality. You want to make your life better, but you know you could you could change people in the margins, but but I think it's foolish and counterproductive to think you're going to change their real nature, and maybe we should think about raising kids that way. It's a long relationship. You want to help the other person, support the other person, establish a good relationship, but you're not going to transform them. Well, so actually, Paul, I, I like that you said that, but but to defend myself, my my point was really about how hard it is to discard the intuition. Yeah. And how and how there are some trivial ways in which which my influence trivial yes. not really but you know sliding doors like if I hadn't helped her maybe she would go into a different field or whatever. Uh, she wouldn't be any smarter or or less prone to depression. Um, so I, I think it, that that's right. I, I also think the sliding doors, by the way, suggest we could have a random influence on yeah, this. Yeah, and right. and the data would just call that random. It wouldn't be an influence. So yeah. If, but if, I, if, if, if you tutoring her in math was 50% likely to come get her interested in math and 50% likely to turn her away from math, yeah. then that's very possible. <laughs> that's right. But, um, but also, like, if peers matter, you also matter in terms of what peers she hangs out with, what well, schools she goes to, what a lot of those decisions are made somewhere along the lines by the parents, right? That's actually, well, by the way, one critique against Harris, which I think carries some weight, which is if peers matter, then parents should matter. It should show up as a parental thing because parents could put their kids in different schools, move, and so on. And the fact that parents don't matter suggests that peers might not matter. Right. It still holds that that is not the way in which parents think they're influencing their kids, but that, that, that right, that has to be. I mean, to, to, to some you, extent, to some extent, I was sensitive to the crowd my kids were in. And yeah. I can imagine changing schools even if I thought it was a really bad crowd. <laughs> right, right. I was going to say, like, how much control, Tandler, do you have over who your daughter's hanging out with at school? Um, I mean, that, no, no. We're lucky to be in a, in a neighborhood where she can just go to a good school and she can apply to magnets. And she, yeah. but, you know, like, we certainly help her prepare for audition, like the audition she had to do to get into her you know, performing arts middle school, which was a public school that was a magnet. And like, so there's all sorts of ways that wouldn't show up in this data that, 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 that you might matter, but it's just one remove away from how, you know, whether I read to her or whether I talk with her about her feelings or whether I like, it's, uh, I mean, this was my last sort of problem with this is she has a very narrow definition of what it would mean for a parent to matter sometimes the way we matter is just is not something that would that you could measure it's not even conceivable how you would measure that kind I mean, of yeah so, what, so so what kind of mattering in the sense of changing your kid not not in day-to-day can't be measured so, for example, the inclination, you said you would have moved your kids, you were sensitive to their peer group, maybe you would have yeah. moved them if you felt like they were not in an environment where they could meet good friends, right? How do yeah. you measure a person's disposition to do that, to be sensitive to their parent, their kids' in environment at school and to move oh. if they sense that it's not a good environment? 
Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, one way to do it would be the disposition should extend to both my biological kids and my adopted kids, the same disposition. So if I'm the good dad who would would affect the kid's environment for the better, I should do so for both biological and adopted kids. And so my goodness should extend to both of them roughly equally. Even your fake kid. (laughs) <laughs> even my unreal kid <laughs> but, but what what i was uh wanting to say earlier about like the even when i dis- there's something nice that happened when i was able to discard this intuition which was i became a lot to the extent that i can right because part of what i was saying is very difficult to do but i became a lot less worried about what i was doing and i you know maybe <laughs> Maybe it turns out that this is a horrible strategy, but I'm sort of more at peace knowing that I don't have to hover around my daughter to make sure, to ensure that her life will be happy. I don't have to feed her, you know, whatever Mozart or, or like good literature in order to ensure that she'll be smart. I kind of have a happier life with her knowing that she's going to be as smart as she is that she's going to have the personality that she has. And, and it's not, it's, it's a terrible existence to think. And I think this is what drives parents to be these helicopter parents to think that everything that you do is, is sort of so powerful in shaping their future, because that's probably, that's, that could lead to me wanting to pay off uh, somebody to take her SATs for her. (laughs) <laughs> and by the way, to connect our, our show, give it a sort of a sort of general solidity and connectedness. One of the people accused of this has been edited out of a of a movie or TV show that she was in. Oh wow, Felicity um, Huffman? That no, somebody else. Um, yeah. Anyway, it was on Twitter. <laughs> the but, other um, one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, can I give my the, what Dave just said reminded me of the last thing that, and I, I didn't mean to be so antagonistic, but. There is this stance that she takes that reminds me of the stance that the antinatalist takes. You're skeptical of this because you don't want it to be true. <laughs> uh, you want to believe that you matter, and so that's biasing your uh, view of this whole thing, which is a tactic that yeah. maybe I used to use, but now annoys me. And, and it's especially ironic in her case because she had a, a, a biological child who was doing great and an adopted child who was not, and she felt like she was a really bad parent. And so she had as much motivation as any parent to come to her views as, as you know, a, a, other parents have to believe that they have this outsized influence over their kid's future. No, that, that's true. That's a fair point. That's that's a fair point. Yeah, I think we can uh, we should just agree that at any point when that starts being the argument, then 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 you're no longer arguing the merits of the case, right? And it I I saw that same thing in in reading her 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 discussion. I you know, we're all motivated by something. Hopefully there are independent <laughs> yeah. gra- hopefully there are independent ways to assess the truth of a claim or not. <laughs> um, Right, I'm motivated by my hostility to that line of argument. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that the 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 take home message though is that we can all just sort of completely ignore our children from here on out because they're going to be <laughs> who they're going to be. Dad, can I get some food? No, Judith Rich Harris said I don't matter. Are you going to feel silly, silly when <laughs> ten years from now 
they're going to say, oh, no, all of David was wrong. <laughs> they have an enormous influence. You and you, David go, oh, no, I should have loved my kid. <laughs> Here's the question. Did, did Judith Rich Harris see the first season of The Sopranos? <laughs> <laughs> Is this Tony's mother? Is it- <laughs> yeah. You're going to tell me she didn't matter? Oh, poor no. you. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good imitation. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> all right. There, there's, yeah. No, go ahead. No. There's oh. a movie I call Three Identical Strangers, which is an extraordinary movie about uh, about triplets who discover themselves and that they're who are separated at birth. But but I don't want to give a spoiler away, but it ends with a very powerful parents matter message that strikes me as grossly unfair. <laughs> and 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 sometimes we see this, I mean there's a human cost to this where um you parents are often blamed for it used to be uh you know, my brother is autistic and I'm I'm old enough to realize there was to, to be living in a time where my mother was blamed for it. Yeah. You must right. have done something terrible to the kid. And, and I think right now kids who, you know, parents are, are, it, it goes both ways and I can see it being used as a cop out for a genuinely bad parent. But I think some very good parents are just blamed for problems that their kids that are totally out of our hands. Actually, Paul, um, because we rarely have an expert on our show. Um, can you clarify for me that sort of the nature of the debate between Jerome Kagan and Judith Rich Harris, given that I thought, so one of the things that I teach in intro psych is, is Kagan's work on temperament. And Kagan very famously showed that you can measure temperament in infants and show that it predicts adult personality. Mm-hmm. And he himself stated that he was trying at that point to disabuse people of the notion that parents could make their kids for instance, schizophrenic or autistic, which was a very common thing to be believed. And it seems as if this, he's, is, did he switch or was his argument always more subtle? It's a good question. I don't know. I don't know. It, it, I, I agree. Kagan was an odd person to be posed against uh, Harris. And, yeah. and I don't, I can't on the fly tell you why. Yeah. I mean, well, to some extent, maybe Kagan was just representing the establishment, and the establishment would always say, you know, okay, there's some genetic influences, but then there's some parental influences. That's yeah. a reasonable view. And Harris is presenting, you know, the call it a null hypothesis is true in a statistical sense. It, I'm not denying what a radical view it is. It's so yeah. radical that, that most people, even in the field, don't believe it. But I think it deserves to be taken very seriously. And especially yeah. if the, when you told me about what happens at child development conferences and, <laughs> and how this is just assumed. And like, I could see how that would be infuriating. And then her position being this refreshing tonic to that is totally understandable. But if you don't have that contrast case, yeah. then she comes off as maybe a little too extreme and a little strident, but shrill because she's a woman. And... Um, <laughs> Was your was your father sexist or is it just in your genes? <laughs> just, just my genes. <laughs> no, he, his... he made he made his father sexist. <laughs> <laughs> but like you know, I think probably that's a really healthy thing to have happened. Although it doesn't seem to have made much. And like I will say this: like for whatever whatever the merits of the argument are, what a great story that this woman was just sort of making ends meet, writing development textbooks, was suffering from from lupus, you know, and and just wrote an article that caused this much uh, sort of turmoil in the field, whether or not it's had a long 
long-term effects who, who knows but but it is a pretty fucking it, i mean it, it it has i mean now the field people like like pinker and others it it this is it's not it, there's a lot of debate about this but but this view is very much on the table um it just hasn't you know percolated down to the rank and file i i should add by the way that i corresponded with aris a little while ago and i invited her to be uh to, to submit uh, an article for the journal I co-edit, Behavioral Brain Sciences, oh, cool. where she would present her view and then do battle with like 35 angry commentators. <laughs> and um, we went, she considered it, but in the end, um, she felt she didn't really have the, the physical or emotional energy ready for it. And she passed away recently, right? Yeah, she did. Yeah. Like she had a piece about her written by Ma- Malcolm Gladwell in the New Yorker in 1998. But the glad, you know, whatever one, you might disagree with a lot of what he says, I, I do, but he's a wonderful writer. And I thought, is, yeah. I thought that if you just read one thing about it, I think the New Yorker article is exactly what to read to get a feeling for Harris's views and so on. Yeah, and the story, her story. Yeah, too. yeah, yeah, yeah. When something is written that well, you, don't, you almost don't want to criticize the ideas behind it. Maybe that's... Maybe that's, <laughs> that, <why>. that's <laughs> It's like uh, when maybe plays that disabled person and everyone treats her really well in Arrested Development. Like that's, <laughs> or when or when Larry, Larry or when Larry's mother dies in Curb Your Enthusiasm, and he gives an excuse to get out of everything. <laughs> Do you know I had dinner? I had dinner with somebody a couple nights ago who watches no TV, and I would endlessly give these analogies, and they'd look at me blankly. <laughs> and, it's, and it made me realize that it's, I can't talk to people who don't watch TV. Yeah. <laughs> and now it's just harder and harder to find reference points with people because there's just too much. Yeah. Back to the simple times when every, everybody talked about Bill Cosby, uh, the Cosby <laughs> show on, thir- on Friday mornings. <laughs> uh, okay. The water cooler. Yeah, exactly. the water right. cooler. Well, thank you, Paul. Thank you for having me. It's great. The- Thanks, Thank Paul. you to all our Patreon supporters for suggesting this episode. You were right, as usual. Join us all next right. time on Very Bad Wizard. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. Just a very bad wizard.